Viktor Suvorov, author of over a dozen books on the inner workings of the Soviet military apparatus from the Red Army to the Spetsnaz, put forward the earth-shattering thesis in his work Icebreaker that Hitler's invasion of the USSR in 1941 was a preemptive strike designed to cut the legs out from under a Russian military machine that was gearing up to invade Europe and then the world. Although highly controversial in places like America, where the people are taught from birth about the triumph of World War II and the necessity of the conflict against Nazi Germany, Suvorov's thesis has garnered much acclaim in many parts of Europe and even Russia, where the proximity to the reign of terror imposed by the Soviet regime still echoes, and people look to explain why the Allies seem to unite with one of the most deadly empires the world has ever seen. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time for Hello, and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, tonight we have a very special guest, uh, Musonius Rufus. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, for regular contributors, I am uh, Hank Oslo, and I'm joined here as well by uh, Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. And Hans Lander. Hi, guys. And tonight we're going to be talking about uh, Viktor Suvorov and the uh, icebreaker thesis. But before we do that, uh, we have another very special announcement. Uh, We've uh, popped our cherry and finally gotten banned from YouTube for uh, indiscernible reasons other than the fact that we uh, breached uh, 10,000 subscribers. Uh, slow clap for us. Yeah, and, if, uh, if you're listening to this, you are the resistance, as Alex Jones says, who's one of the few people <laughs> who was very prominent to get thrown off YouTube. There's an info war there. out there. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I, and I actually, since we're talking about the uh, Suvorov thesis tonight, the, the sort of Soviet defector, um, it's interesting to note that Stalin allegedly claimed that any newspapers with 10,000 subscribers or less are not worth controlling. So given mm-hmm. the fact that mm-hmm. we were crossing 10,000 and that we, we lost our channel is is very apropos and perhaps not a coincidence that that number is having significance to, in today's <laughs> censorship society. Well, perhaps he wrote the rule book for our elites and they're still playing by it. Who knows? So. Well, we are on BitChute uh, on the same channel name, Myth20C. BitChute is a great platform. Um, I would encourage people at this point to actually just make it your primary platform if you plan on posting uh, audio or visual content. Um, it's possible that we might, um, under some other account, uh, might uh, arrange to upload um, some particular shows or uh, clips or something um, just because it's easier to embed in places like Twitter. Um, but BitChute is going to be a primary uh, repo going forward. And of course, we have our uh, our RSS feed of uh, MP3s for your audio listening, podcasting, commuting pleasure um, at uh, myth20c.wordpress.com. Uh, 
Yeah, and if anybody can help get the word out about BitChute, it is a great platform. A lot of other people who have been kicked off of YouTube or who are getting content limited, age restricted, whatever other stupid things YouTube is throwing at them, they're realizing that you know sooner rather than later is probably a good move. And if we can help build a critical mass on that platform for people who think like the way we do, uh, all the better because you know less power for the opposition, which is at this point basically every frigging. Uh, Silicon Valley tech company, uh, so less power to them and more to the people and platforms that we uh, we consider friends. So we want to help them out, and uh, any other channels that are on there would appreciate it as well. So please help get the word out. So Masonius, um, we're talking tonight about the Suvorov thesis. Um, I guess uh, who who is the Suvorov character, and uh, you know what was his plan? Ah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Victor Suvorov is the uh, pseudonym for a Soviet defector uh, named Vladimir Rezin. Vladimir Rezin was in the GRU, which is Soviet military intelligence, and he defected to Britain in 1978. And then he proceeded to write uh, several books that were critical of the Soviet Union, giving an insider's view of the, the military, that sort of thing. Victor Suvorov, the, the name, is actually the name of a Napoleonic-era Russian general, you know, a great hero uh, to Russians, and it was the name of the military academy that uh, Vladimir attended. So that's the name he used as his pseudonym. So the uh, he wrote several books, and I actually read one of his books inside the Soviet Army as a teenager. You know, back when the <laughs> the Soviet Union had just uh, dissolved, it was a book being thrown out of a library, and I picked it up. And uh, I had no idea it was a pseudonym either, but uh, that his most famous work is Icebreaker. Uh, back in the 1980s, he wrote uh, Icebreaker. It went on to become the best-selling work of military history and you know modern history, and, and uh, it's widely read in Russian, German, European languages. The Anglosphere, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's always had limited runs and. Um, <laughs> like the first run uh, was in a, a limited release and uh, it didn't it hardly sold out at all but uh, eventually there was a huge demand for it and they released it in a more wide edition and finally the Naval Institute press released a 20 I guess it was 2010 or 2013 edition so it's something that you actually can find in a electronic uh, version if you're uh, so inclined um, as well as uh, whatever sort of uh, you know previous print editions uh, exist, um, I would also recommend um, looking up. I mean, honestly, all of his all of his books about the Soviet army and state per se are very interesting, and he has a very particular uh, style, um, particularly inside the Red Army and his book about uh, Russian counterintelligence. Um, where it's very kind of short, uh, uh, almost like you know, self-Socratic, uh, where he sort of poses a question um, and then answers it over the course of like you know, ten pages or so, and then goes on to the next thing. Um, particularly inside the Soviet Army is fantastic if you're yeah. interested in like comparative, uh, comparative military organizational stuff, which I guess is you know has to be at least a couple of our listeners. Yeah, if you read Inside the Red Army, um, it, it's a great book. It's available as a free um, online just HTML doc. It has this kind of self-Socratic thing going on where he poses a question about 
why the Soviets did something um, in a particular way and then answers it over the course of like 10 pages. And there's like, you know, there's dozens of these things, everything from like how they designed their uh, their weird millimeter uh, designation of different shells to, you know, why uh, why they loved to give like every subdivision of their uh, of their armed forces its own independent mortar um, stuff, things about tactical doctrine. It's, it's really good. But one of the other things that comes across through um, that and a lot of his other work is how much he just legitimately despises the Soviet Union. Um, he never really misses a chance to point out the fact that uh, they have sort of a, in his telling, a um, almost contempt for the, uh, the the lives, the values, the you know, kind of quote unquote human dignity of their subjects, um, which, you know, certainly explains why he defected on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, you know, if you are a defector, it's very important to stay in the uh, good graces of the, uh, the people that you've defected to. Like, let's not mince words. Defector is just the polite word for traitor. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but, uh, there's a certain, I, you know, uh, uh I guess, you know, defecting from the Soviet Union is a little bit more understandable than, say, you know, defecting from Switzerland <laughs> and betraying all of uh, Switzerland's military secrets. You know, because you know the Soviet Union was um, an aberration. <laughs> I mean, just like modern day China, there was a secret society called the Communist Party Soviet Union that ran the government from behind the scenes. That's how modern China works too, and uh, you know that. They industrialized. They essentially took a peasant society from the time of the czar, and uh, you know, industrialized. And uh, the collectivization of the peasantry was the greatest mass enslavement in human history, you know, for sheer numbers. And um, they they used that enslavement to industrialize. And what did they? What, what factories did they make? Tank factories, you know. So uh, the the Soviet. You know, the Soviet Union was not a normal country. It's uh, actually its seal for the country was the world. It had a hammer and sickle on the entire globe. The, and the big argument in the Soviet Union among the Communist Party, you had the left versus the right opposition. What was the big argument over? Well, you know, Trotsky and many others wanted to export, use Russia to export revolution to the entire world. Whereas Stalin, you know, wanted to have "quote unquote" socialism in one country and build up, uh, you know, a big, powerful military machine, uh, economic, you know, machine there, you know, in in a communist country, you know, before conquering the world, and that was the argument. You know, the they they both agreed they were going to conquer the world, both sides. The palace of the Soviets was actually begun. They blew up a a great cathedral. Uh, was it the, tra the Transfiguration? Um, anyway, they they blew it up and they started building the Palace of the Soviets, which was going to be the White House for world communism. You know, they were going to put Lenin, you know, a giant statue of Lenin, Lenin, and it was going to move around with motors and all sorts of weird stuff. They they had begun it and then they ended up stripping those steel, that steel foundation in order to protect Moscow when the Nazis were were attacking Moscow. So. Anyway, this is a strange country, and when he was recruited, when Rezin was recruited into the GRU, uh, they show all the recruits the same video. It is a black and white film that they play on the screen for all the recruits, and it shows a man 
uh, strapped to a stretcher with piano wire. And uh, you see a furnace. And uh, they throw the man into the furnace alive. And then they tell all the recruits that the only if, – if you ever betray us, the only way you're leaving this building is, by, is through the chimney. And uh, <laughs> this is a tough group of people, and this is not a normal country. And uh, you know, if you were to treat Hitler or the Third Reich or the Nazis like it was a normal party, normal, normal leader, normal country, you would be considered a bad person. You know, people would would hate you, but for some reason, we have to consider the Soviet Union like it's a normal country, it's a normal government, it's a normal leader. You know, Stalin was, and anyway, that's I think that's the moral foundation that Suvorov is operating off of. Yeah, he hates it. Yeah, he defected, and uh, he wrote a lot of good stuff trying to reveal the uh, Soviet military machine to the world. Especially to the West. There was a, a Red Ice uh, guest, I think by the name of Israel Shamir, a few years ago that I, I listened to. And it came up, um, Henrik must have asked him one of these uh, related questions uh, regarding the Hall of Demore. And we did a show on the Hall of Demore, and I think Hank's contention was that it was an intentional genocide. Um, I'm not, not uh, as, as convinced, but I, I'm open to, the, to many interpretations, and it clearly was. Uh, a terrible mismanagement of people, as China's mismanagement of, of their agricultural system. Uh, there, there are several arguments to make that it was an intentional thing. Lenin, in particular, uh, argued that the farmer is actually the greatest threat to the revolution because they're fundamentally an independent entity that does not need to be collectivized, and so therefore they should be collectivized and be removed from their land. Uh, and so the Holodomor, of course, was a death by starvation, uh, as the name uh, means, and it was essentially a mass famine that was uh, produced largely by the collectivization drives of the Soviets uh, in the Ukraine. But what, what I would add is that it also occurred in the Volga region of Russia as well. It wasn't just targeted at the Ukrainians, but I think the, uh, the death toll was a little bit higher in the Ukraine. Uh, but uh, Shamir basically said that this, uh, this was not an intentional genocide by the Soviets, but it was necessary. And his argument was that because the, the Soviets were under threat from Hitler, arguably, you know, not really an entity until 1933, and I think the Holodomor happened prior to that, so this argument is somewhat strange to me, but he basically said that if the Soviets did not collectivize and industrialize in particular, they would not have been able to make those huge tank factories and artillery factories that they later deployed during the Second World War, uh, and actually well, before the Second World War against Finland and other other countries. Um, so that was his argument. And well, uh, Shamir, I have a lot of respect for because he tells us a lot of the dirty details about you know uh, how Judaism is practiced by modern day Jews. You know the sort of stuff you're not supposed to talk about. I have a lot of respect for him for that. And, uh, you know, so does Ron Unz. You know, I think uh, Ron Unz has talked about him in his excellent, superb American Pravda series that he's got going on on his own site. Uh, but, you know, the purpose of the collectivization was – it was ingenious, and uh, the, the Soviet Union is the only country in the world that industrialized without having a concomitant uh, rise in the standard of living of its workers. And, you know, like how did that happen? Well, it, it – the uh, in order to industrialize, Stalin needed money, real money from the West, and he needed Western machinery, and he needed help. And so he's like, "Well, all we got is grain to export to world market uh, markets." 
And uh, but if the peasants sell the grain, well, then they'll actually get richer and they'll spend it on, you know, toasters and, and clothing and stuff that <laughs> they'll waste it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to collectivize agriculture. That way, the state sells the grain. The state uses the profits from the you know selling the grain on the world markets, and then invest that into industry. And you know that is exactly what. It, so Shamir's perfectly right there. That's what he did. The uh, 1934 uh, Communist Congress was called the Congress of Victors because they had attained all their collectivization goals, and it was working. It was working. And uh, but you know what what were they making? You know, it's not like they were making a lot of consumer goods. You know, to raise the standard of living for all their people, uh, they were making weapons to conquer the world. <laughs> I mean, I hate to be dramatic here, but they had the finest tank in the world. What named the T thirty four? You know, that's the year. You know that it was uh, designed. They bought the rights to the uh, suspension from Christie. You know, an American engineer. You know, uh, they just they bought that one outright. They stole a lot of uh, intellectual property uh, without buying it, but they bought Christie's. And uh, it was uh, Ford. The the Ford Mo Boner Company helped build uh, the factories of Chile Events, also known as Tank Tankograd. <laughs> you know, uh, funny has a funny little nickname. But that was the you know the great industrial center east of the Urals. And um, you know, so Stalin was. Uh, had to collectivize his peasants, uh, and uh, you know you can argue about how much the Holodomor was targeted, but you can see why it occurred. You know because the silos were full of grain as these people were starving. Why why doesn't he just let them have the grain? Well, it's because he's going to sell it on world markets and turn around and and build industry with it. He's not going to let them have it. And so you you can argue why was it particularly bad in the Ukraine and and everything else, but that's another show. The Holodomor deserves its own show. But, in fact, uh, we uh, we did uh, we did a show on the Holodomor. Yeah, um, that's yeah. one of my more favorite uh, episodes. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the Suvorov thesis, uh, in terms of icebreaker, uh, you know, my my sort of distillation of it um, would be that, uh, in his view. Stalin was planning a first strike on uh, Nazi Germany in uh, 1941 after right. they had already um, partitioned Poland between them, shared this uh, long border between them and uh, their sort of uh, quasi or Germany's quasi ally, uh, Romania to the south. And that Barbarossa, um, Hitler's uh, invasion of uh, the Soviet Union, happened to have happened um, like a month or so um, in his uh, sort of uh, explicit hypothesis before Stalin uh, would have been able um, to mount his uh, supposed uh, invasion of uh, Germany. You're absolutely correct. That is the Suvorov thesis. You see, Hitler is blamed for uh, starting World War II, even though hostilities in the Far East, you know, were before September first, nineteen thirty-nine. But he's blamed because you know he militarized the Rhineland, he did the Anschluss with Austria, he te he took uh, the Sudetenland and the Czech Republic, and then finally the French and German Empire, uh, French and British Empire said enough. You know, if he does, if he tries to do any more expansion, we're going to declare war on him. So he invaded Poland September 1st, 1939, and that is the official beginning of World War II, even though there was all sorts of fighting that was going on in, in uh, East Asia, you know, before that date. And uh, 
they declared war on him. Two weeks later, Stalin comes in on like September 17th, and he takes over the other half of Poland. And then he machine guns 15,000 members of the uh, Polish intelligentsia, the creme de la creme of Polish society, in the forests of Katyn, you know, the Katyn massacre. And uh, so there were two invaders that both agreed to invade Poland, and only one of them was considered the aggressor in World War II, according to the official history, and that's Hitler. So, you know, Suvorov starts uh, there. You know, why? how did this happen where Stalin got to invade Poland, commit worse atrocities, but he actually became an ally of the very empires that, you know, said that Hitler was evil and declared war on him for Poland. And uh, if you start there, um, you know, he, he goes back in time and he works up a very good case, you know, and there's all this anecdotal evidence. But, you know, let's let's start with August of 1939, if you if you want to, gentlemen. And talk about what happened that month. Yeah, let's uh, let's go through it. Yeah, the month before World War II began, uh, Stalin had a blitzkrieg in a blitzkrieg in Mongolia. I think it was yeah, it was April uh, August twentieth. Excuse me. And uh, the uh, Japanese Sixth Army had invaded Pola's you know so, uh, uh, excuse me Mongolia's sovereign territory. And the Soviets uh, wanted to push them out. They wanted to keep uh, Mongolia as a buffer state. And so they launched a, a, a blitzkrieg uh, using the latest weaponry. They had uh, airstrips right on the border you know, where the bombers could uh, drop their loads before they even attained altitude, turn around and come, come back and get more. And uh, there were nine tanks for every hundred you know, Red Army soldiers that participated. And uh, that, that's a high ratio. I mean, the Germans only had two tanks for every 100 uh, when they invaded Poland on September 1st. And um, so they completely destroyed the Japanese 6th Army you know, in detail. And uh, the Japanese decided there and then that they would never fight the Soviets ever again willingly. And so all through Barbarossa and Stalingrad and all that, when the Japanese could have tied up uh, – uh, the Siberian divisions that uh, Stalin had in the east, they decided they weren't going to do it because they lost a whole army in August before the war officially began against the Soviets. And the Soviets used a sneak attack, and they uh, they used uh, the latest weapons and the best tanks and all that. And after that happened, see what had happened at the beginning of the month diplomatically is that France and Britain had come to Stalin and said, we want an alliance with you in order to prevent – to contain Hitler, to prevent him from ex, uh, expanding anymore. And Stalin was like, well, tell me more. I don't like fascists, you know, Molotov, you know, his foreign minister said. And so they explained that there was war on Hitler if he, did, if he tried it again. Okay, And Stalin was like, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. But on August 13th, he dismissed their diplomats, and they went home kind of sore about it. Because you know they had really thought they were going to work up an alliance, you know, with Stalin against Hitler, and then on August nineteenth there was a secret meeting that everyone claimed didn't happen. Pravda said it was a rumor, et cetera, et cetera. But we know now that it was true from you know various memoirs. And this at this meeting, Stalin met with the, his highest generals, and that was when he decided what he was going to do. What he was going to do was create a non-aggression pact 
with Ribbentrop in the Third Reich and uh, going to provide them grain, petroleum, all that, and they were going to uh, partition Poland together. So on the next day, he orders the Japanese Sixth Army to be destroyed, and then on August 23rd, he makes that the famous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And this sent shockwaves throughout world socialism. You know, because the fascists are the enemy. They were specifically created to prevent communist revolution. They're national socialists. They're, you know, they're named after the shock troopers at the end of the Great War. They, you know, they meet the, uh, you know, our, our communist thugs in the streets and beat our asses. They're the enemy. The fascists are the enemy. And he's making uh, a treaty, uh, a non-aggression pact with the enemy and all those front organizations in the United States immediately started trying to keep the United States out of war. Uh, you yeah, know, this, were over- this is notoriously Woody Guthrie, um, switching on a dime, like literally within days from, uh, being a committed, uh, oh, we got to do something about these Germans to like writing about how we've got to stop, uh, this poor, uh, rush to war and we really shouldn't be so hasty. Right, right. The most infamous example that I can think of, and the Dyes Committee, you know, which later became the House on Un-American Activities Committee, you know, cataloged like 500 of these organizations. I mean, there were there were countless. They have an Appendix Nine, which is like over 2,000 pages showing all the fronts that the Soviet Union was creating inside the United States. But the American Peace Mobilization <laughs> was the name. The APM was the name of this organization. And, you know, they picketed the White House, said, you know, the Yanks aren't coming. And, you know, they're trying to keep America isolationists, you know, that evil word, non-interventionist. And then the moment that June 22nd, 1941 occurs, they become the American people's mobilization, <laughs> not peace. <laughs> and they're all about war. You know, we, we need war uh, with uh, with the uh, Germans, the Huns. And um, and and so this, uh, you know, Stalin decided all this in August that he was going to make a peace treaty, he was going to have a non-aggression pact with Hitler, and he was going to provide them petroleum. So, you know, think about this. September happens, 1939, uh, Germany invades, and they believe that Stalin's going to invade at the same time, September 1st. He doesn't. He tells them, oh, I can't. We're not ready. You know, poor little Red Army, we're just backwards, and we're not ready. Okay, so they go on to destroy... You know, the Germans go on to take on the, the main event, you know, with the, the Polish army. And the Poles fought like hell. You know, they're very brave people. And then on September 17th, the Red Army finally rolls in. They take their half of Poland and they proceed to commit, you know, great war crimes like the Katyn massacre. You know, Stalin hates Poles. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting, you know, the, uh, you know, the French and British empires have declared war on Hitler and Stalin knew that was going to happen. And, uh, but he got to rape half of Poland, and he didn't get war declared on him. But it did, it did piss them off, but they didn't clear, declare war on him. And think about what's going to happen next. You know, Think of uh, Dunkirk, uh, the uh, Battle of Britain. You know, think of you know, Germans uh, bombing uh, England. And you know what kind of petroleum is in those gas tanks in those bombers? Well, it's uh, some of it is Russian petroleum from the Soviet Union, from the you know the oil fields, Grozny and such. And uh, there's uh, you know tons of wheat being transferred to Germany. 
you know, all the, so wheat and petroleum, wheat and petroleum, right up until June 22nd, 1941, they let a train go by at 1.45 a.m. filled with, you know, a thousand tons of wheat and so many tons of petroleum products. And then they invaded the Soviet Union. They betrayed their ally. But it, the trains were running right up until the minute they invaded. So Stalin is actually supplying, you know, the fascists, the anti-communists, uh, the supplies they need for their conquest. You know, after they conquer Poland, you have the Sitzkrieg, you know, for Germany, or also known as the Phony War, where not much is going on. They've conquered Poland, but are they going to go to war with France? What's going to happen? You know, it's the Phony War. And, uh, you know, finally they bust out in 1940 and, and, and conquer France. Well, while they're conquering France, they're getting petroleum from the Soviet Union. They're being helped in their conquests. That's their ally. You know, they can afford to send huge armies to the West because they think the East is secure. The Germans do. Meanwhile, in November of 39, what does Stalin do? Stalin uh, attacks little old Finland. Okay? Finland is like the Switzerland of Scandinavia. Those guys can fight, and uh, they, uh, they're very good at defending their territory. they got bunkers as far as the eye can see. Well, you can't see them because they're underground. And uh, Finnish soldiers know how to fight in Arctic weather. I mean, truly Arctic weather. Okay, Stalin uh, creates a um, a fake attack. He said, "Oh, we were bombed, you know, from Finnish territory." And the Finns are like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, we'll bring in international neutral observers to show you that we don't have any artillery there. We don't know what you're talking about." But uh, Stalin's like, "Not interested. You know, we were attacked. We're going to avenge our honor." And they, pres- and they invade the Karelian Isthmus, you know, a place of swamps, boulders, and they're doing it in like negative 20 degrees Celsius weather. It's like negative 40 at night. They're doing it during the winter. It's called the Winter War. You only have like eight or nine hours of light every day, and uh, they, get, uh, they sustain horrible casualties. The Red Army does. The, uh, there's only three parallel roads into Finland, and the Finns have alpine troops. They, they ride on – you know. They ski down, they snipe all day, and then they go back to their heated bunkers where they have hospitals, you know, soup, you know, barracks. It's all heated and it's all hidden. But the Red Army uh, continued for a hundred days until they finally broke through the Mannerheim line. And let me tell you, these these Finnish—they're uh, like the Swiss. That they they expended a hundred. Uh, 1,320 tons of shells just to take out a single pillbox. You know, a finished pillbox. And that tells you something about the Red Army. You know, I think that tells you a lot more <laughs> about the Red Army that they can do stuff like that. But as soon as they break through, the Finns are like, all right, uh, you know, enough. You know, they know that the Red Army can now expand across their plane where they live and conquer them real quick. So he, Stalin brings them to the negotiation table. He says, I'm going to keep the isthmus, right, which is their, uh, their wall that protects them. Uh, I'm going to keep that. I want a Soviet Finn, you know, because Stalin always had uh, people from your country that were good communists that were willing to take your place in the government. I want a Soviet Finn over the nickel production, and um, you know, and, and I think those were the two main things. He's going to, and he's going to keep an army right next to the nickel production. Well, seventy percent of Germany's nickel, like, comes from Finland. And so he can turn it off now. Stalin now has the ability to turn off uh, Hitler's resource of nickel. 
and he's brought the fins to heel, which is uh, considered an impossible feat. Now he loses like 150,000 killed, more than that, you know, wounded. And so the West thinks, well, the Red Army really isn't ready, and so do the Germans. They're like, wow, you know, he really – they weren't really ready for that, were they? These guys are uh, – they're not up to snuff with modern warfare. But the rest of Eastern Europe was, was terrified. They're like, they, you don't understand. He did the impossible. No army has ever fought in negative 40-degree weather and won, and the Red Army just did that. And so he occupied the Baltic states uh, it, over the next three months after conquering Finland without firing a shot. They just gave up. And then he told Romania, you know, where Germany's oil, main oil supplies are, that I want uh, Bessarabia and North Bukovina. And they said, yes, sir. And they just gave it over. You know, so he is conquering left and right after conquering Poland, but he's not considered an aggressor in World War II, you understand. He's taking away all the, all the, the sovereignty of all these states, uh, but he's not an aggressor. Germany's the aggressor for conquering the French Empire. For well, what you mean, of course, is in the West. I mean, if you talk to in the West from Eastern Europe and, and the sort of uh, Ukrainian and uh, Baltic regions, I mean, they, they hate Russia. I mean, to this day, my friend from Poland uh, cannot stand Vladimir Putin. He admires him, but he just he just cannot get that out of his system because that instinct of distrusting the Russians because of what they did uh, prior to the Second World War and during the war. Uh, and after, I mean, it, it was just a, it was a really cruel and brutal empire. Uh, you mentioned uh, one other thing that I thought was notable, uh, highlighting the fact that Stalin would wait to deploy troops uh, in key, key strategic moments. Uh, it was a pattern that he, he deployed quite a bit, uh, and it gets to some of the theory as to why Hitler uh, arguably had to act. Um, so the example you gave of uh, Poland being a, a target for both the Germans and the Soviets, uh, yet the Germans had to do the bulk of the initial fighting, and then Stalin basically just went in for uh, the easy pickings once, uh, you know, once the sort of lioness pack goes in and, and takes down wildebeest, you know, the male saunters over and grabs his, his dinner sort of thing. That pattern was something that also the Americans observed uh, with the Japanese. Uh, I think the, I guess it was the Truman administration at that point, after FDR had died, uh, it, was, it was trying to get the Russians, uh, the Soviets, to invade some of the, the holdings that the Japanese had uh, in China and eventually the, uh, the islands, the northern islands that Russia eventually did invade. But he waited basically, I think, until after the atomic bombs or right before they, they went off. Uh, to do that, and the Americans were wanting him to do that, and he was basically just trying to save his, his resources, Stalin, that is. Uh, and then, as it pertains to Hitler, uh, one of the things that I think Masonius you sent out before we started was there was uh, an argument being made that Stalin was using Hitler in the same sense of he was using the Americans in the sort of East and the Germans uh, with Poland uh, in isolation, but he was also using the Germans in Europe as a whole uh, to basically soften up the region for eventual total conquest of the, the continent. And so in Hitler's mind, you know, he had to act unless, you know, the, the entire entirety of Europe would be overwhelmed by the Soviets because obviously the French, the Americans, and the British were doing nothing to help him. And so that was the sort of... Um, 
thinking going on in his mind, allegedly. Oh yeah, and this is all secret, guys. Like this, this is the sort of stuff they don't talk about. Like you know, the French and British Empire—they were so mad at the Soviet Union that they were going to bomb the oil fields of the Soviet Union. If you can believe that, from Syria and Iranian or Persian uh, air bases that they had, and they really were going to do it. They called it Operation Pike. It was named after one a British officer that was killed by the Bolsheviks during the revolution. They were. They were pissed about it, and they're like, "Well, if we bomb the oil fields and you know get a lot of his reserves, uh, then that's going to slow down Hitler, and maybe he won't be able to invade." Because the uh, the the Soviets, the British, they both believed, and in fact, everyone believed that the Third Reich was going to invade Britain, and this was actually part of Hitler's genius. He had he never had any intentions of invading Britain, but he loved people thinking that he was going to do it. Because it could bring them to the negotiation table. Uh, you know, think of the uh, Canadian commandos that went and blew up those concrete, you know, floating devices in that river mouth. Uh, what was that called? Dieppe? Or, no, I, I forget what it was called. It was on the coast of France. But, you know, they held that as like this great victory that the uh, Canadians got for the empire, which, you know, they were very brave. You know, I'm not going to take it from them. But the whole p- purpose was to make Britain think it was going to be invaded. You know, and uh, you know, because he did not want to invade Britain, and uh, I but think it was it was an impossibility. Like the, uh, I've always heard the the description, and by the way, the the thesis for um, the UK wanting to bomb the British uh, oil fields. Uh, I thought the the Uns uh, Ron Uns um, discussion of that was the first time I heard about you that. Know, I actually looked at his. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. Y- yes. Uh, yeah. You're right. And I thought that was that was actually very well um, sourced, which you know he's actually fairly good at incorporating uh, primary sources, which is just so important when you're dealing with this period of history, because there's just so many secondary and tertiary works that just kind of circularly cite each other, and unless you're actually looking at a document in question or somebody who has verifiably and credibly pointed at that document, you're just, you know, it's navel-gazing. Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the when they conquered France, the Third Reich, they tried to get the archives, uh, their diplomatic archives out of Paris, and on a rail. And their train car was captured, and the Third Reich got Operation Pike, you know, what the French had of Operation Pike, and gave it to their buddy Stalin. So, you know, Stalin, uh, you know, he, he's, he knew about Operation Pike, and he was very distrustful. Of course, he, he considered all these empires to be capitalist pigs. The more that they attack each other, the hyenas eat each other, the better it's going to be for world revolution. You know, it's going to soften up. That was the thesis that was basically shared by Hitler and Stalin. Like I've, I've read the thesis that essentially if you look at kind of you know, to the extent that they had a grand strategy, uh, you know, obviously the the USSR's uh, sort of priorities and ways to get there are fairly well known. That there would be a world revolution. You would ideally have the Western powers consume themselves uh, fighting, and this would lead to the same sorts of resolutions that happened in nineteen uh, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. On the German side, I mean, the the description of it that I've always, uh, or not always, certainly, because it's a little bit of revisionist uh, history, 
was that effectively the reason that uh, Hitler had to attack the USSR um, was in order to get the resources that would allow him to attack the UK. Yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's a good argument, but let me tell you why I think it's ultimately uh, false. Like, you're exactly right about uh, the war, the Great War, causing the Bolshevik Revolution. And all the Bolsheviks, all the old Bolsheviks knew this, including Stalin. You know, uh, you can't make any headway uh, against the capitalist pigs and their freaking uh, reformist you know, institutions. You know, because they're going to buy off the workers using, you know, these uh, social welfare schemes. And so yeah, there's it kills off uh, the revolution. But when you have a war, when you have the uh, shortages of a war, uh, it suddenly becomes possible. So what we need is a giant war. And when Stalin, you know, successfully industrialized in 1934, he started preparing for the Great European War. That is the Suvorov, That is part of the Suvorov thesis. And it explains why he got involved in the Spanish Civil War, which happened, what, between 36 and 39, okay? Why would you risk getting involved in that if you're a peacemonger, you know? And he was, I mean, the USSR fought a series of wars in Poland uh, after the conclusion of World War I. At at one point, they were very concerned that, like, Poland, and, you know, you consider... Poland also has been ravaged even more so, really, than any of the surrounding countries by war. It has the least advantageous strategic position of any country in world history, really. If you look at its neighbors, its terrain, its resource base, its sustainable population. And the USSR's greatest strategic threat from, like, 1920 to around like you know 19 mid 30s was that Poland was going to drive all the way to Moscow so I mean they it, it this is a cliche that often arises when somebody's trying to make an apology for Israel that they live in a dangerous neighborhood but I mean in some cases it's actually true the USSR just by virtue of its size if nothing else they are surrounded by enemies to see there's the UK to the east, there's a rising Japan. To the west, there's a resurgent Germany. To the south, like there's you know the UK again in the guise of uh, Turkey. I mean, there's there's no end to the uh, uses that a strong military can be put when you kind of find yourself uh, everywhere at once. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Trotsky uh, was over the uh, Petrograd Soviet. Uh, he and uh, Lenin, you know, were rivals, but then they made a deal and became, you know, <laughs> good allies. And um, uh, Trotsky was over the Red Army, and they had to find um, Soviet officers or, or officers for the Red Army that would serve in it. And Tukhachevsky uh, was one of the higher ranking ones, and he was a lousy commander. He had been captured. Uh, he was fighting for the Tsar, captured in the Great War, spent six months as a prisoner of war, and then he was uh, returned You know, during the revolution. And the workers' Soviet or the soldiers' Soviet elected him as a leader You know, because he would let the soldiers do what they wanted to do. That's that's the kind of leaders the, the soldiers' Soviets elected. And uh, Ch- Chukov, uh, he was sent to Poland in 1921 
to uh, invade Germany and aid in the communist uprisings going there, going on there. But of course, the communist uprisings in Germany have been sort of excised from you know most Anglosphere history of the period, but uh, they were very important. And uh, but Poland, you know, in, uh, proceeded to kick his ass, uh, you know, to, uh, and uh, sent him all the way back, you know, sent him packing back to Moscow. And then he was just put in charge of, you know, rounding up peasants and uh, shooting hostages again, you know, like he like he did during the Civil War. But he was one of the uh, the reason why I had talked about him was because he's one of the generals that were purged in 1937. And people that don't like the Suvorov thesis said, well, you know, they, he purged – he cut off the head of his army, Stalin did, during the Great Purges, the Great Terror. And so they weren't ready for war, and that's why the Germans kicked their ass. And it's like, well, you know, there's all sorts of problems with that, but this guy is no military leader. He's an idiot. Like uh, when, he ever, when, he wrote, when he wrote about numbers, he usually got them wrong by like an order of magnitude. So he would tell you that the the fronts in the Great War went on for hundreds of thousands of kilometers, and it's like, well, you know, you might get six, you know, <laughs> you know, six thousand at the most if you counted up all the, you know, the bins in them, and uh, and his grand plan in the mid '30s was he's going to build a hundred thousand tanks for Stalin. He's like, you know, there's not enough resources for a hundred thousand tank army, bud. You know, built all all at once. So, you know, this guy is uh, – he's not very bright, and there were a lot brighter people uh, that Stalin wanted to put in his place. But he was – he did have good, good connections with the old Bolsheviks. So when you look at the Great Terror or the Great Purge, you know, who are the – who is he purging? He's purging uh, Trotskyists, which are basically the Jews. You know, one ever talks about how the Great Terror just emptied the Jews out of uh, the high ranks of the military. The Red Army, and uh, the, you know the, the Trotskyists, and uh, he's purging uh, these incompetents that could never lead men in real war because everyone is from a village that this guy machine gunned. You know, during the Civil War, he is a war criminal. He is not a great general, so he's getting rid of the incompetents. You know, and they they would and people say, oh, he 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 purged thirty thousand. Uh, officers. Well, first of all, he had 206,000 officers in his military. So you're talking about at most 20%, right? And it's not even that. He literally only executed 10,800 only, right? But that's an even smaller percentage. You're talking about like 6%. And then the others were either uh, discharged from the military or they, uh, most of them, over 12,000 of them, came back at lower ranks. So he didn't really cut the head off of his military he made it more effective in the purge and um there's all sorts of things about stalin that are you know we 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 believe things that are false essentially like why would trotsky be allowed to gallivant all over the earth you know calling him a traitor to the revolution if if stalin didn't like it you know eventually in 1940 he sent an assassin with a ice pick to take out trotsky in mexico but Trotsky had been purged, you know, back in 1927. So why is he still alive, you know, 13 years later? Meanwhile, other guys, you know, Stalin purged guys in the 20s. You know, he had one general killed on the operating table. <laughs> you know, he fought. You know, he didn't want to be put under because he knew he was going to die. He had, a, you know, he had his deputy, you know, drown in a lake. A lot of people had accidents around Stalin. And, um, you know, so why, why didn't he kill Trotsky? Well, because Trotsky was useful. 
you know, Trotsky is providing the impetus to get rid of the old Bolsheviks that he wants to uh, eliminate. He just accuses them of Trotskyism. Yeah, it's also a central node that he can keep an eye on. I mean, it's sort of like I always worry in, in two directions about George Soros because on one hand, it's sort of a clear propaganda win for this guy to be as, as obviously uh, subversive as he is. Uh, on the other hand, he's going to die and the people who also have a lot of influence and obviously he knows he's going to die so he's he's delegating quite a bit of this stuff and there are obviously other people involved those are going to be less obvious and so as a coordinating point uh, it's useful to have an enemy number one and number two you can keep tabs on all the activity around that guy uh, much more easily than if uh, you take him out and suddenly you know the, the sort of resistance becomes very distributed uh, that's that's sort of a, just a general theory. I don't have any particular evidence for no, this no. case, but I think that's my intuition here. Yeah, there's nothing. Well, that's an old Lenin tactic, and he would tell you the same thing. There's nothing like creating your own opposition, you know, because you control them, <laughs> you know, and that that was a common tactic. So you're right about that. But Trotsky did have to die after '39, because Trotsky starts talking about how he's using Hitler, you know, to uh, you know cause the the Great World War. He's helping him. You know, so that he can break it up and have you know a, a revolution and a conquest to you know to bring Europe, you know, into the uh, you know the world Soviet, and uh, you know he can't have that. <laughs> you know, Trotsky, uh, you know, knew what rule book he was playing by, and he's like, oh, this is obvious what he's doing. You know, he wants another great war so that he can conquer. That's why he's using the fascists, and uh, so. You know, he had the guy had the guy assassinated, and of course, the assassin, after serving what twenty years in prison, he came back to uh, hero of the Soviet Union and all that. So, and had a nice cushy sinecure job uh, afterwards. But um, yeah, the uh, you know, you, you you gentlemen are absolutely right. But when once you start looking at the Suvorov thesis in this way, it, you really start seeing World War II fundamentally differently. You know, it's like wow, you know, there were seven international brigades that were defending the Spanish Republic, and uh, they were trying to get America involved. I mean, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I mean, come on, if the yeah, fascists destroyed it. Yeah, if if the fascists destroy the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the Phalanges do. Won't that get America involved? You know, and, and uh, so I just want to interject. I've been watching a lot. I've read a few of his books, um, and I've been watching some of his uh, videos that kind of have more interesting tidbits um, from time periods that he hasn't exp explicitly uh, published on. But uh, Stephen Kotlin is the guy that I'm talking about. He wrote. Uh, the magnetic, uh, the magnetic mountain, um, and uh, yeah, it, everyone's waiting for his third volume of Stalin's biography. You're right. Right, and the first two are very interesting, particularly because he does this sort of primary source research, and he's actually, I mean, he's not by any means a quote unquote revisionist uh, historian um, in terms of branding or the the sort of fundamental thrust. Um, but I found a couple of his uh, points of analysis very interesting. Um, the first being uh, that in his interpretation, um, Neville Chamberlain's central problem was, okay, well, let's say we actually go to war and ally with the Soviet Union and try to fight Hitler in you know, 1930, pick a year, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever. Uh, you're left with the problem then of 
in the best case, the USSR controlling half of Europe, which is not an ideal situation by any means. And the second sort of uh, you know red pill, um, if you'd like to call it that, was the extent to which the UK was uh, prepared to enact uh, economic warfare uh, on uh, a rising Germany uh, well before the outbreak of uh, World War II and sort of settled for its enactment uh, upon the uh, the outbreak of hostility. But, I mean, in the, the sort of, you know, 1930s-ish time frame, um, there's a... There's a nice picture of a Microsoft uh, or cartoon, I guess, a uh, cartoon of Microsoft organizational uh, flowcharts where it's just a series of guns, everybody pointed at everybody else, which is dead on and also perfectly encapsulates Europe circa like 1936 or so. Like it's completely unclear who's going to end up screwing whom in the final analysis, but it's obvious that some nations are going to be deeply deeply screwed like you have a like a revolutionary terror state in the form of the ussr you have a revanchist germany a revanchist italy you have a france that's more than willing to engage in a first strike due to their terrible uh, uh terrible strategic position all of these countries are in a wildly unstable system and to portray any of them as particularly peace loving is just completely historical. But I mean, like my question is uh, specifically with the specific thesis okay. circa like 1941, Suvarov makes a lot of wild claims and I'm, I'm going to let you elucidate um, some of them before. I'll just be upfront. I, I don't believe the Surat thesis at all. Um, I believe it's, it's completely plausible that the USSR was kind of in the abstract planning something further down the road um, to the extent that everybody was, again, like prepared to betray everybody. But I, I don't believe that they were planning on invading in like you know July of uh, forty one or whatever. Um, but Suvorov does, um, and you know he has uh, he has some evidence to support his claim. Um, can we uh, start to get into that? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, by nineteen uh, by July twenty first, nineteen forty, that is when Hitler first starts talking to his generals about invading the Soviet Union. And it's because of the wild behavior of, uh, you know, conquering the Baltic states, conquering, a, a, you know, part of, taking part of Romanian territory. So he has a better spring port to attack the Ploesti oil fields, which are, you know, the main lifeline, uh, oil lifeline for Hitler. And, uh, you know, and, he's, and when he, they talked to Molotov, uh, he, they asked him, it's like, what? You know, are you? Do you plan to attack uh, the Ploesti oil fields? I mean, what, what are your intentions toward Romania? And he would be silent about it. And then uh, the Baltic states was a huge mistake. Suvorov says occupying the Baltic states was a huge mistake because there was no border between the Soviet Union and the Third Reich before they uh, both attacked Poland together. They created a common border by doing that with the non-aggression pact. And then the Baltic states, his reasoning for why they conquered it is because they wanted you know, extra jumping off points to amass more armies for the invasion. Okay? And uh, you know, so you need Lithuania if you're going to attack East Prussia. And, uh, but 
you know, Suvorov said the communist way of doing things is if someone attacks you, you create partisans in his rear, and you always use propaganda to your advantage. So uh, if uh, the Third Reich had invaded the Baltic states first, uh, they would have left behind lots and lots of professional partisans you know, in order to uh, tie up resources in the Baltic states. We touched and they would in our episode on the Spetsnaz and – Suvorov wrote a book about the Spetsnaz, and so his argument in, in the general thesis of like, why Hitler had to attack was that uh, one of the clues that was uh, the Soviets going from a defensive to an offensive uh, position was the fact that he moved the stay-behinds uh, in the case of a possible attack of the Soviet Union, and they're there to defend against the aggressors. Uh, he moved the, the Spetsnaz out of the, the sort of stay-behind zones of villages, basically just like safe houses and things like that, where they might be partisans in an invasion. He took them away and put them into, para, into the paratrooper corps, and the paratroopers was, in his view, basically an, only an offensive tool, not a defensive one, because you're basically you're, you're throwing them over the border into the enemy uh, enemy's uh, territory as opposed to fighting on your own territory. So that, that was the uh, example he gave in that book. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to speed up then and just get to the meat of it because that's what we want, right? Uh, Stalin had over a million uh, airborne trained troops. Uh, in the mid-1930s, it became a, a badge of uh, Soviet manhood uh, to go to the uh, parachute tower in the city square. Every major city had one. And to, to try your medal to earn your parachute badge, okay? And you had to go swimming, running. You had to be ready for it before you finally got to jump out of the airplane and get the badge. Well, he had over a million, you know, and pro that was what Pravda, you know, admitted that they had over a million uh, trained parachutists. And why would you need that many parachutists? It's like 20 times more than the rest of the world put together, uh, unless you were going to fight an aggressive war, because parachutists do not have heavy weaponry. You know, their their main goal, like you said, you know, you drop them behind the lines for deep penetration on enemy territory. And whether it was Lenin, Stalin, every single Soviet general, they all talked about you want to fight, you want to defend your country, or you, you want to you want to wage war on the enemy's territory. Period. Okay. So the paratroopers are about waging war on the enemy's territory. BT tanks. Okay. BT means like high velocity in Russian. These tanks uh, were the fast. Uh, they could uh, you could take off the tracks, and they had rubberized wheels, and you could literally go 60 miles per hour on a paved highway. On them, which was pretty fast back then, and uh, the, but they were light tanks, you know. So you're talking about basically a, a mobile machine gun, you know, armored machine gun. And now these tanks were not so useful in Russian territory because they didn't have any highways, you know, paved highways. But the uh, Germans did, and the Poles did. So he's got four thousand of these BT high-velocity tanks, so that he can speed along the autobahn and cause chaos in the enemy rear. And these tanks are not very useful, or not as useful, you know, in Soviet territory. Okay, uh, five million uh, phrase books that were printed for uh, to teach Russian soldiers how to say German phrases. Okay, they printed five million of these, uh, gave them out to everyone with their ammo. And uh, you could read it phonetically, and even if you didn't speak German, you know you could uh, pronounce the Cyrillic alphabet, and you could uh, you know say you know like, is there water here? You drink it first, you know uh, you know the, don't worry, the Red Army's coming, you know these sort of phrases. 
And uh, so wh- why would you need that? You know, and uh, look at the phrases. The phrases are about talking to civilians. You know, it's not really about just talking to soldiers. Okay. And then he had uh, over 100 million maps. Now, these are, were not maps of the Russian territory. They were maps of Polish and German territory. 20 rail cars worth were seized by the Germans in Operation Barbarossa. So these, these maps, you know, and it's over 100 million, um, you know, they were completely useless, useless to Soviet artillery when the Germans attacked. What the Germans asked, you know, why was your Soviet artillery so awful? You know, they're, they're asking Stalin's son. They captured Stalin's son. And uh, he's like, well, we don't have any good maps, you know. And uh, they're right. They don't have any good maps. And why are they being surrounded? Whole armies are being surrounded and destroyed. They had the Stalin line just two years before. The Stalin line is like over 100 you know, f- uh, fortification complexes, like the Finnish fortifications, surrounded by the security pale of landmines, thousands upon thousands of landmines. They could have retreated there and really put up a defense so that you know the road to Moscow wouldn't be left wide open. Why was it destroyed beginning in 1939 in September? And, and, they, and Stalin had it all dynamited. Why would you dynamite all those bunkers? Why, why waste the resources to do that? And it was before they built the Molotov line, which wasn't anything comparable. The Molotov line was a series of obvious you know, above-ground bunkers, you know, and uh, you know, it's, the, the, it wasn't the deep defense network that you need. So why he ruined the Red Army's ability to defend Russia by destroying the, uh, the Stalin line? Why didn't they have maps of their own territory if they're going to defend Russia? Why did, he, why did he make the diplomatic mistake of taking Lithuania and the Baltic states You know, if you're worried about Germany invading? Why, why when, he, did he, when he took Bessarabia and northern Bukovina from Romania, he demanded – uh, 1,600 more rail cars of narrow gauge that he could not use in the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union had wide gauge track. You know that was a nice collection when you add it to all the narrow gauge uh, rail cars that he got from Poland. You know he had thousands of these narrow gauge rail cars that he couldn't use in the Soviet Union. You know this peacemonger interested in defense. No, he wants the war to be in German territory. In fact. You know, after Hitler talks to his generals in July of 1940, uh, he's still playing around, uh, you know, trying to get a diplomatic uh, solution here. And uh, it, in November of 1940, that's when he pulls his generals together and says, that's it. We need a plan to invade the Soviet Union. Well, you know, what happened? Well, what happened was during that time, uh, they saw the huge buildup that even the Germans could see. You know, along the border, and it was right on the border. Airstrips right on the border. You know, why did why did the Soviet Union have uh, Stalin's pipe organs, all those rocket launchers? You know, it's like the least Russian weapon you can think of. You you fire it at a distance, and then you run away. It's a perfectly useless vehicle when it comes to actual combat. You know, and then you Something have to like go recharge. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's because the rockets were designed for the Ivanov airplane. It was supposed to be. It's a lot like the uh, Japanese bomber used to bomb Pearl Harbor. It it was cheap. It was easy to mass produce, and they wanted to catch the entire uh, German air force on the ground. <laughs> they didn't have 
uh, lots and lots of fighters uh, to maintain air superiority to defend their own space. But they had lots and lots of bombers. And there's nothing archaic about this, the Red Army. You know, the, the, the Germans, you know, because of their resource crunch, they got anywhere from 600 to 750,000 uh, horses, pack horses, just to carry around, you know, uh, their stuff. <laughs> and, um, and I can't get a straight answer. Most sources say 750,000 horses. And, um, but the, the Red Army's uh, mechanized. You know, and uh, he's got – Solon's got 12 of the latest airplanes. He's got a strategic bomber that no one else has. It can fly so high that he flew Molotov over the Third Reich during the war without ever worrying about him being intercepted by enemy fighters because it flew so high. Its secret was before there were turbines after the war, this thing had a fifth secret engine that just provided compressed air to the other four uh, engines. So you know, he's got – you know, absolutely state-of-the-art technology, but he doesn't want to produce st strategic bombers. He didn't want to mass-produce those. You know, he ma he wanted to mass-produce the ground attack bombers. And and when they ended up making the uh, IL-2, which is the most mass-produced uh, military aircraft in, in aviation military aviation history, uh, he's like, I don't want a gunner on it. You know, I want more fuel. You know, so uh, they took out the, the gunner, which is supposed to protect this poor, slow-ass, heavily armored ground attack aircraft, and uh, that made it very susceptible to German fighters. Well, wh why does he not care about German fighters? What, what's the matter with Stalin? It's because he wants to get the entire German Air Force, Luftwaffe, on the ground. He wants to occupy them with millions of paratroopers. He wants to bring in gliders. He's got 17,000 gliders. And these things are flimsy. They're made. They're going to de be destroyed by the Russian winter if you don't keep them in hangars. So his hangar space throughout the European part of Russia is filled with these damn gliders. What's the good of these gliders in a de defensive war? There is no use for them. So these are the sort of facts. And I'm going to let you, you know, guys ask away, uh, you know, because I've been talking too much. But these are the sort of facts that Suvorov brings. I just, I just want to know. And these are great examples. Um, I just want to know if there's any individual officer level documentation about clues the, the types of strategies and plans for this type of attack are taking place a lot of these examples are based on sort of equipment deployments and things maybe a, a german intelligence or reconnaissance a team would pick up uh, and so from the point of view of, of germany this this does make some sense but is there any hard like orders given in, in written yeah. form from the Soviet high command that can be obtained today, or did Suvorov find any of that? No, yeah, great question. First of all, Suvorov tells you right up front he doesn't use classified documents. He can't. He has no access to the archives. The Soviet Union officially declared a death sentence when he defected. That the you know, that hung over his head. Um, you know he. Uh, and, and these historians that study the Red Army, like David Glantz, you know, great historian, he kind of makes out the Red Army to be too efficient, frankly. Uh, he writes all these books about him. But he, um, he almost lost his archive access uh, because his publisher you know, put out a title like Zukov's Greatest Defeat or something like that. And he didn't want to call it that, but the publisher wanted a sexy title. Well, you know, they, they banned him from the archives. Right, so he went back and forth. You know, he was accused by Anglo historians of being, you know, a red lover. 
<laughs> you know, for loving the Red Army so much. And then he's kicked out of the archives for a few years because he won't want because he had one book that was critical of Zukov. And the Russians are so sensitive about it that they put out a book on the exact same topic refuting him within a month of that book coming out. They, you know, they got on it. So this, these are the sort of hazards that professional historians have in this area. And uh, you know, so Glantz is going to tell you that you know, the Suvorov thesis is wrong you know, because he's not going to have access to the uh, Russian archives if he doesn't. But you ask a great question. Right after the Soviet Union fell, what, Christmas of 91, uh, was that right? And, uh, yeah. The, um, uh, during the Yeltsin era, there were all sorts of mistakes made with the uh, uh, archived material where they let outsiders in, hostile people in. And it leaked the, the war games that the Soviet Union had uh, to practice the invasion of Germany leaked uh, around uh, Stalin's 60th birthday. On December, what, like 19th, 1940, uh, 274 marshals, generals, and admirals met in Moscow. And they had a conference that lasted until New Year's Eve. And at this conference, the, the matter of the talks was, was in the archives, and it leaked. And the guy who spoke on you know, the, um, the, the Red Army Air, you know, uh, the Air Force, uh, he was talking about destroying all the units on the ground. That's how they're going to achieve air superiority in the event of a war. And, you know, you can't do that unless you have a surprise attack, unless you choose when the war begins. There's no way you can accomplish that. And, you know, Zukov gave the first and most important talk. And after these talks, after this conference was over on January 2nd, they gave them New Year's Day off, uh, they started the war games. And the war games were huge. You know, involving Zukov uh, playing the quote-unquote Westerners, and uh, the others were you know, trying to uh, defeat him in the war game. And this war game determined that uh, they would get bogged down in Prussia when they attack. And so it, they want a quicker – they need a, a – uh, they chose the southern front as a quick way uh, to actually gain some ground. So they're going to attack Prussia. You know, Eastern Prussia, but they're going to put Zukov and the mountain divisions and the most important army in the south. They're going to go over the Carpathians and attack Ploesti and knock, you know, knock out uh, Hitler's uh, oil supply. You know, after that, the Germans only have synthetic oil that they make out of coal. coal you know, yeah, and, the, and, and so, their production numbers were pretty abysmal. I mean, it was like five percent of what they wanted to achieve. It was it was never meeting what they really needed. Uh, so that that was never going to sustain them in a in a fight. So th that was one of the most pivotal resources, if not the most pivotal resource, is petroleum. No question. Yeah, yeah Stalin. My, Stalin, go on, sir. Well, my problem with all of this is that, of course, you would have war games. Like that's, I mean, you now have a gigantic border with this other enormous country. Like you your only real two contingencies, like at some point you're going to fight a war with somebody along that border if you are a revolutionary power. But the actual decision as to we're going to make it a, like this is a plan, a goal of our country. You mentioned the archives. I mean, the fact that Suvorov wrote before any of these things are available, um, you know, means that he just, he's writing in, in such a, a vacuum of 
things that we now have access to. I mean, these things are are publicly available now. Things like the meetings of the um, the uh, the central um, committee, um, the various uh, notes taken by Stalin. Like, if you're going to make a decision to go to war, the amount of paperwork that that generates is enormous, and in my estimate, there's absolutely no way. We actually have empirical proof that it would generate this kind of evidence. Because if you look at the German archives, you see just copious, like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of orders, of uh, deliberations in the high apparatus about how you go about this. Is this a good idea? You have private letters between generals, between party officials. Like everybody's talking about this thing before it happens. And in the Soviet case, despite the fact that after the fall of the uh, the USSR, you know, you don't have access to all of the archives. Things like the um, the counterintelligence archives are uh, you know kind of limited access. They still publish parts. But we do have things like the uh, the internal deliberations of the the Communist Party. Um, a lot of the uh, the military stuff, even like military operational stuff, um, it's it's just not there. Like this, all of this well, stuff I mean, is is circumstantial. So it, I, it's been it's gone down the memory hole, right? I mean, because George Orwell's nineteen eighty four is about Stalinism, you know, and uh, you know you will never find a more secret state than the Soviet Union. I mean, maybe communist China now can compete with it. I don't know, but. Uh, the uh, you do not. I mean, Stalin made a joke about it in uh, at the conference that I was talking about. Uh, he was in a very good mood, you know, because <laughs> they were about to accomplish all their goals. You know, the goals he'd been working toward for the last twenty years, and um, according to the Suvorov thesis now, and uh, you know, he said, "I, I told uh, you know, I, I tell you, comrades, never to write anything down." And then everyone joked. You know, everyone laughed. You know, because, uh, you know, Stalin made a funny about, you know, don't write anything down. Well, and, yeah, it's a joke because, like, they do write everything down. Like, that's, that's the essence of their state. Like, there's a lot more embarrassing stuff that they wrote down than the fact that they were planning a preemptive strike uh, in 1941. Like, that's the, the idea that, like, oh, no, like, it might be discovered that in the midst of this gigantic world conflict we were planning on, you know, having it happen a couple of weeks earlier is is it's nothing compared to all the stuff that came out about uh, you know things that were even personally embarrassing um, to uh, to various people um, involved, just their personal foibles. But I mean, things like Katyn, things like their uh, their infiltration of uh, their uh, putative allies at the time, like if you're going to start shredding documents, um, you know, your military plans are honestly too big to shred if that's a it's a like actual goal that you're planning on exercising compared to like you know, some embarrassing piece of analysis or whatever but i mean compared to all of the other dirty secrets of like a revolutionary terror empire i i don't know like it, like is there another case that so, would serve as like a counterproof of that where well, like, like no something I mean, happened but there's I'm, no evidence yeah. shredded yes sir yes sir Okay, just making sure. So I just want to clarify, Hank, is your your contention that there's not enough documentation and that uh, the documentation that would prove some of this was not available to Suvorov at the time, that he was part of the military in the Soviet Union? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're kind of in an operations role in the military, you wouldn't have access to, like, you know, the deliberations of the Central Committee. So, you know, there would be no reason for him to have access to that. Like, if there would have been war plans or orders or something, he might have had access to that, but it's not like he was grabbing these things on his way out. So... Well, yeah, oh, no, yeah, expected. he doesn't use any classified material. He talked about at the Suvaro, at the academy because he spent a lot of years training. Because the, the the one thing they do right is uh, intelligence in the Soviet Union, and um, they would uh, present the um, these military problems. And he talks about this in some of his books. And they would talk about the abysmal situation that the uh, Soviet Union was in, uh, you know, when it was Operation Barbar- Barbarossa when they were invaded. And uh, it was the numbers that they gave, you know, because the conclusion was, you know, the Great Patriotic War was this huge sacrifice. They saved the world from Nazism. The uh, Great Patriotic War is sacred. Uh, You know, you're not allowed to question it, you know, because of the number of people who died. I mean, good Lord, tens of millions. And, uh, you know, so that's why it's a deep, dark, dirty secret, you know, because even at the Nuremberg trial, right, they tried and, you know, the – the lawyer that was uh, defending Hess and defending Mal- uh, no Ribbentrop, uh, he, uh, you know, tried. Uh, he's like, well, he tried to prove that the uh, the the uh, Molotov Ribbentrop Pact existed because it didn't officially exist, right? And so he's trying to he's begging um, uh, U.S. military officials, you know, please, uh, if you could find this document, the um, you know Ribbentrop says it exists. And finally, some officer one night, U.S. military officer, tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Are you Dr. Seidel?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah." And he's like, and he handed him an envelope and then walked away. He didn't even know the guy's name. And the envelope contained the original, an original copy made by the, um, you know, the, the the foreign ministry that was, the, I forget what it was called in the Third Reich. And it, and so he tried to have it introduced at Nuremberg to say, "Look, you know, Hess and." Uh, Ribbentrop, you know, they're not guilty of aggressive war, of conspiring to wage war on the world, uh, bec- uh, because Hitler and Stalin came up with this idea together, you know, and they, and they have to do what they say, you know, these men say, and uh, the uh, Soviets stood up and said, "We are not here to talk about the Allies' foreign policy. We're here to talk about the Axis war crimes," and so the judge said, "Okay, it's not admissible." But you know you're, you're you'll be allowed to talk about it with Ribbentrop, and Ribbentrop had been told by the Soviets, as long as you don't bring it up, we're going to go easy on you, you know. And so he had to reluctantly answer questions on the stand under oath about this. These this is the level of secrecy we're talking about. If you lived in 1946, you would have no idea that the Soviet Union and the Third Reich had been allies because you live in the Anglosphere and it wasn't well known here, but it was well known in France. You know, the French were very mad about it. And um, so, anyway, uh, that's just uh, secrets upon secrets upon secrets is the Soviet Union. And uh, he couldn't use any of that. He developed the thesis all on his lonesome, you know, from the official story of World War II, you know, because it didn't make any sense. We've got, you know, the Soviets had 24,000 tanks when Hitler invaded with 3,500 in Operation Barbarossa. And they're the little guy, the little weak guy that's not ready for war because that's what he was told, that Russia wasn't ready for war, that the Soviets weren't ready for war. And then when he finds out about the Stalin line being destroyed, it's like that. If you were interested in defense, why did you dynamite you know, a thousand casements? 
You know, why did you destroy this? It doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense from Machiavellian's point of view. Stalin is a, you know, a great Machiavellian chess player. And just like a conqueror that burns his ships you know, upon making landfall, he does not want his generals to think that there's any place they can run back to. Only aggression, only invasion, only moving forward, you know, w- you know will be their salvation. And uh, so he destroyed them all. Have, and have any other, uh, I'm sorry, uh, real, real yeah. quick, have any other Russian historians corroborated some of Suvorov's claims? Yes, yes, it is. It, it, you, you are living dangerously, but yes, they do. Uh, in fact, there are two, there are two uh, factions. You usually have a lot of uh, old Soviet Jews that now live in Israel that are you know, defending the standard you know, story. And then you'll have you know, some uh, intrepid guys that are riding underneath strict censorship that are attacking the story. So, for example, Stalin's War of Extermination is written by a great German military historian. He totally buys the Suvorov thesis and totally adds more to it, more than you know, Suvorov. Because you know, Suvorov is actually – he gives Stalin a little too much credit you know, when you think about the thesis. You know? And uh, but um, he, if you buy the book off of Amazon, it has stamped right there on the cover, you know, approved by the German censors, you know. So German Parliament had to have talks about this book that he produced because it was supporting the Suvorov thesis. That's the level of censorship we're dealing with, you know. On a side note here, you know, Bukowski is a famous defector too. He's the one that told the West about how the Soviet Union uses psychiatry to punish, you know, uh, dissidents. Right, and he he got out of there, you know, what 1970. Well, you know, the guy's on his last legs, and uh, he published in several languages these archives that he scanned during the Yeltsin era. <laughs> you know, Yeltsin is like this Communist Party is suing him because he gave away all their stuff. You know, so Yeltsin's trying to prove the Communist Party is an illegal organization, never really existed. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union during the Russian era after the Soviet Union fell. He invites Bukowski thinking, yeah, this dissident is really going to rip them a new butthole. And uh, what does uh, Bukowski do? He brings in a 1995 laptop with a scanner, a hand scanner, and scans all the central committee archives that he can (laughs) and gets out of there. And uh, he's published in every single language except English. Because in English, Random House said, we're not going to publish this. He's like, why? He's like, because you're showing the collaboration between people like Francis Ford Coppola, people in the Carter administration, where they were cooperating with the Soviet Union. You know, So we're not going to publish this. You have to rewrite it from a liberal, progressive perspective, and then we'll publish it. And he's like, I don't think you know me, but I'm not that into censorship, fam. You know, and, you know, he was willing to die, you know, to not be censored. And so they fi- he finally published it last month, by the way, gentlemen. Uh, but you know what? He has been accused of child porn in England, and it's only because he's on his deathbed that they don't try him for it. But the investigator who got a warrant to go search his house went and talked to the press about it. So no one's showing up at uh, Bukowski's trials anymore, you know, because he's a, he's a kid toucher. You know, and uh, you know, Bukowski's like, well, I think the Russians planted it on there. Well, who knows who planted it on there? You know, because he's uh, <laughs> he's he's upsetting Western liberals too. So you know, Bukowski's going to die alone. You know, even though he's done a you know a great thing for freedom, 
And uh, but it shows the reason why I go into the story is because people in the West don't want you to know this stuff. Random House publishers, you know, uh, David Glantz, you know, these important people are going to lose, you know, they're important behind people behind them that are pressuring them, and and like they don't want you talking about this, you know. And there, there's plenty of uh, stuff like that, examples. And you would think that a country that is accusing the Russians of being, you know, the bad old KGB all over again, influencing our elections, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You think they would be all about the Suvorov thesis? Well, yeah, let's bl- not quite, because the sort of biggest founding myth since the end of the war. Uh, for the United States has been that we saved the world from Hitler. So you can't take that away from the, the Washington You got it. Times. You, you got it. There's too many important people that would be hurt. If, you know, and that's why I think the American Pravda series that Runs is doing, it's excellent. And he did a little piece on Suvorov. You know, he did a little article on it. The, it there's all sorts of people that would be hurt. What if the average American actually believed Patton was assassinated by the OSS? You know? There's all sorts I don't think of the average American knows who Patton is. Oh, General Patton, probably not anymore. You know, but uh, I just use that as an example. You know, the Suvorov thesis is radioactive both in Russia and in the West. It's radioactive in the West because you will be called. It's like uh, Doctor Robert was it Doctor House, Jonathan House. You know, great old military historian. Uh, you know, he'll tell you straight up that only neo Nazis believe the Suvorov thesis. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the Institute for Historical Review, the same people that questioned the Holocaust back in the 80s. I forget who, who the uh, right-wing you know, sugar daddy was that, where all that money came from. But they, they uh, engaged with the Suvorov thesis, and uh, most of the stuff that you see – like on the only things on YouTube that you'll see are Suvorov himself doing book TV back in what? The early 2000s. Wait, what, what, you, what was that thing you mentioned? Tube something? Oh, heard, yeah. I haven't heard of that. <laughs> well, don't worry. They've started to take the Suvorov thesis off of YouTube, too. So there you go. Because the, the in preparation for the show back in May, I found a video, and I would just listen to it while doing something else to try to prep. And you know, sure enough, that video is gone now. How has, uh, how has Suvorov impacted, I guess, the wider historiography of World War II? Has he had a significant impact? Did it? That a lot of his work, specifically on this topic, create a huge amount of controversy in the 80s and 90s, or did it sort of fly under the radar? No, he's he keeps going. Okay, so I mean, he is the number one best-selling military historian uh, in of the 20th, 20th century and 21st century. I mean, I guess you could argue that Thucydides or one of the classical guys have sold more books, but that's what you would have to argue he, because no prolific. modern. He, he's written like yeah. 18 books, I think. Yeah, and a lot of them are not in English, right? Because you can't – no Anglosphere Press will print his stuff. He, he did Icebreaker, I want to say, in 85, and then he came out with a better edition in 1990, a bigger, wider edition. Well, the chief culprit from 2013, the Naval Institute Press, finally put it out in 2013. So you can um, – and, and it's a little different than Icebreaker you know, because after Icebreaker, he proceeded to write what Mobilization Day, M-Day, and then The Last Republic. He wrote like five or six books just about this thesis. The Last Republic is about the Soviet Union's plans you know, to be uh, the capital of world communism. When the last republics added, you know that <laughs> the, the, they'll have a special monument there at the palace of the Soviets, where they destroyed that cathedral. 
You know, on an interesting note, by the way, the Palace of the Soviets, it was never rebuilt after World War II because World War II shattered <laughs> the Soviet Union. And uh, it turned into the world's largest swimming pool. And then uh, when uh, the Soviet Union fell, they rebuilt the cathedral just as it was. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so instead of the, uh, the White House or the, uh, the Congress of World Communism being there, it's a cathedral again. I have to say that none of the history books I've read on the Third Reich on World War II uh, mentioned Suvorov. In fact, I don't think I even knew Suvorov was until about six months ago. It's so very I, common in the English sphere, yes, sir. The, uh, but ask a Frenchman and, or ask a German or ask a Russian, and they'll, well, they'll know exactly who he is. I was going to ask, is he uh, – maybe it depends on region of the world and sort of academic subsect, but – is he well cited? So you know, in terms of the French study and French historical review of World War II, is he brought up consistently? Yeah, yes, sir. The the um, you know, think of all those books that he's written on this, and basically only Icebreaker and the updated version, the Chief Culprit, are the only ones you can find in English. All the other ones have not, you know, been published in English, right? So this is the number one best-selling military historian on earth. He sold over a hundred million copies. Of these books, and uh, but English speakers are like, who? Who are you talking about? You know, David Glantz will write Stumbling Colossus about how it destroys the Suvorov thesis, and it's like, I hate to tell you, Glantz, but no one knows what the Suvorov thesis is because you wrote your book in English, right? It has been that well censored, you know. And when you read the Stumbling Colossus, it doesn't engage any of the factoids, <laughs> you know, like seventeen thousand gliders, huh? 24,000 tanks. They, they've got you know, amphibious tanks. No one else has those. They have uh, high-velocity tanks. Those are both light tanks. they got the greatest main battle tank in the world, the T-34. They have the KV heavy tanks, two versions of them. No one else has heavy tanks on Earth at this time. Okay, Those KV tanks could take like 50 hits a pop and keep going. You know, from other tanks, they they killed on average ten German tanks for every KV they lost. But they want to tell you that the Red Army wasn't ready for war, right? He's got twelve uh, brand new airplane designs, uh, some of the best airplanes in the world, and he all he has to do is choose. You know, they, they're ready for war. They're ready for war. They just weren't ready for defense. It never even Stalin didn't even want them thinking about defense. He wanted an invasion, or that's the Suvorov thesis at least. And men of goodwill can disagree on this, you know, because I'm not an ab absolute expert. Uh, but the way that you fight over it is over the facts, and they and uh, most people who dismiss Suvorov in the English speaking world don't talk about the facts. And um, you know, even even great historians, David Glantz is a great historian. He'll tell you about Maskarovka, you know, deep operations. He'll tell you about all this cool stuff about the Red Army. And uh, you know, Suvorov will, will tell you stuff too, so you should really read both. I'm not saying that one's bad, the other one's good. But when you think about the level of deception, here's a good example of Soviet deception, and this is why it's been kept from you. Okay, Like uh, the destruction of Army Group Center involved Operation Uranus and Operation Mars. And Operation Uranus was the main event, got all the artillery. They created a, a, a group of armies, Stalin did, that had no artillery, and its whole purpose was to be destroyed by the Germans, to keep them in place so they could be surrounded and destroyed. Okay, These armies were sacrificial lambs. Zhukov, who commanded them, didn't even know this, didn't even know this. Stalin 
had a white emigre uh, or a, a, a Soviet whose uh, family were white emigres, famous, and so that he was on the list that Germans wanted that they could maybe turn into a spy. He told him, give him uh, the, give the Germans the plans to Operation Mars. He said, yes, sir, and they gave the plans. And so the Germans completely destroyed that army. They had the plans beforehand, <laughs> but Operation Uranus completely surrounded them and destroyed them. Zhukov didn't even know these guys were sacrificial lambs. They didn't either. Zhukov didn't know that Hitler had been found in 1945. It was 20 years until 1965. That's when he finally found out that Schmiers found Hitler's body, did an autopsy, and then buried it. And uh, Stalin called him up, knowing that Schmiers had Hitler's body, and just harangued him for being a, a freaking idiot for not being able to find Hitler. But Stalin knew where Hitler was, you know. And 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 this is the level of secrecy. The, Zhukov, can you find a, a a Russian general that was higher than Zhukov? No, you can't. You know, Marshal Zhukov. The uh, he didn't know for twenty years after the war that they had found Hitler's body. That's that's the level of secrecy that we're dealing with, and and uh, Stalin had all sorts of intelligence networks. You know, you had the famous Richard Sorge in Japan. Uh, he had the Tsar of Bulgaria was talking right to one of his agents. Uh, he had seven uh, generals that were compromised, German generals. You know, in the OKW, uh, this guy has all sorts of networks, and they don't know about each other. So Stalin could do things like go to the Moscow air defense and say the Germans are going to attack in three days. I want you to be ready for it, and then leave. <laughs> and then sure enough, the Luftwaffe would attack in three days. I guarantee you those, those pilots, those Luftwaffe pilots had no idea they were going to attack Moscow before, you know, when Stalin knew they were going to do it. You know, and that's the level of um, espionage craft you know, that he's enjoying. And uh, this is an espionage state. It is a Czechist state, a state of secret police and espionage and assassination. It's uh, it's 1984, you know, and uh, the Soviet Union. I have lots of respect for them after reading Suvorov, and I have sort of my weird Christian reactionary perspective. I'm like, man, it's like there was an antichrist, and he created an atheist empire, and he almost conquered the world. But Hitler, crazy old Hitler, <laughs> gave him a beating that they're still whining about. All the limousine liberals, all the so democratic socialists, all the commies, they're still crying about it because that's how bad Hitler hurt him. Did, didn't the Wehrmacht have uh, belt buckles that said, God mean uns, like God's yeah. with us? So, you know, of course, every army is going to cloak themselves in as, as holy a, a, a shield as possible. Um, so it's not, not to say that it, that, was, that was the Christ army, perhaps, but... It was. Um, I mean, you make a compelling case. You know, the, the amount of um, secrecy and the amount of preparation that the Soviets were, were well, doing he, indicates that there may have been uh, quite a bit of offensive action intended. Well, here's a good one for founding armies in Operation Barbarossa. They act, you know they killed a Soviet general. And they gave him full military honors, and they buried him with a cross, which is sort of ironic for a Red Army general, right, on his grave. And uh, they didn't know what to put on it, though. They knew his name, but they didn't know what he was a general of because of the secrecy. I mean, you know, Soviets aren't – you know, if they have mountain divisions, they're going to call them rifle divisions. They're not going to call them mountain divisions. You know, they, you know, everything's a secret. It's a, it's a masquerade, a masquerovka. And so um, 
they're like, well, what was he leading? He's, he, he was leading those black troops we don't know, you know, the black corps. He's like, okay, so it's, you know, general so-and-so, uh, commander of the black corps, you know. Well, who are the black corps? You know, these guys wearing these black outdated uniforms. It's the prisoners from the gulags. Before Operation Barbarossa, he's arming them with rifles, and they're the second uh, echelon troops, and they're marching through the forest, you know, toward the border, getting ready for the invasion. Uh, the book Hellstorm by Goodrich will tell you how the Soviets liberated. You'd have the real European troops that were very professional, very good troops, and then you would have the 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 criminals, the mongoloids, the minorities, you know, and uh, they would come and commit all the rapes and stuff. So Goodrich has a very good, uh, a very sad but poignant example of this. Uh, it was a town. It was a town in East Prussia. You know, the Soviets invade. The Red Army rolls through, and the mayor of the town is dressed in his Sunday best, ready to surrender. You know, to the conquerors, and they and they just all the Red Army just shook their head and just moved on to where the German army was. And then, then came the Mongols, <laughs> uh, you know, criminals, na- you know, uh, the rapists. Uh, they tied him to a tombstone. Uh, his own family's tomb you know, is like his own father's tombstone in the graveyard. And then they raped all his women in front of him till he died of a heart attack. This mayor. And this is what liberation is, you know, Soviet liberation. You want them to know that they're conquered. In fact, the rapes went on. About two million German women were raped. And uh, they went on until 48. Stalin finally had to say enough in 48. This is three years after the war. The rapes are still happening. You know, Stalin's like, yeah, okay, boys, that's enough. We won't order. You know, th- this, is, uh, this is not a normal country. And treating it like a normal country, frankly, is insulting. It's a fascinating cult, uh, country. You know, it's, it's, it's Byzantine and it's, uh, it's evil. But it, it, it's evil. You know, it's like... You know, the Germans, we're supposed to, you know, hate them forever. You know, there was like some sort of pop song put out this year about, and Germans, we forgive you, you know, was one of the lyrics. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, everyone knows what that means. You know, we finally forgive the Germans. Well, who's going to forgive the Russians? When the Soviet Union fell, none of these guys who were still alive were ever held accountable. There were no Nuremberg trials, you know, for these guys. You know, you're leading rape armies. Excuse me. I was looking you know? at um, a a bar graph today uh, from somewhere on Twitter, and it was actually showing the 20 deadliest conflicts or, or mass die-offs that, that have ever occurred in human history. Uh, I'll put this in the bit shoot video, but the the Genghis Khan's uh, escapades throughout uh, his reign. Uh, if you adjust for the total percentage of the population at the time, actually were the most most atrocious in, in world history by far. Um, and then the Second World War itself factors in about halfway, believe it or not. Uh, but Stalin himself, not not including you know a whole war or, or just uh, you know um, you know basically it was it was just him. He was he was right right up there about thirty percent, if I recall correctly. Uh, and the the famines, of course, coming from the, the Mao regime, I think even might have beaten him. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that, and they may have done this intentionally, I don't know, but the amount of people killed by the German regime wasn't even on that list. 
Uh, and so that we're and we're told, of course, that if you go to Netflix, I mean, it's just like nonstop. You know, they used to call the History Channel the the Hitler Channel, but it's like Netflix. I think is taking taking over that position because it's always about you know Hitler's evil evil weapons and uh, Hitler's plans for this, Hitler's plans for that. Totally blown out of proportion. Yeah, let me tell you about uh, Hitler's genius here because. Um I I forgot I neglected to mention this. You know, uh, you know we, we have the war games in January of 1941. We're leading up to Jan, you know, June 22nd, that fateful day, you know, 1941 when Operation Barbarossa launches. Well, uh Stalin has uh like 102 pieces of information that the Germans, you know, might be trying to attack him. You know, they they're going to try to launch Operation Barbarossa. You know, we we counted them up. We know of at least 102, and he didn't believe them because what Stalin wanted was facts. Bear, you know, facts. He's like, uh, show me uh, sheep prices. <laughs> sheep prices. Okay, let's go look at sheep prices. No, no, they're not slaughtering sheep to create sheepskin coats. Okay, uh, go steal some of the cleaning rags they're using on their rifles and, and uh, analyze them. It's like, nope, they're still using the gun oil that. Um, the old, the same gun oil they always have in Poland, um, you know, the, it will not work in our in our winters, in our in our cold winters. It's uh, they don't have lubricants, and he's like, well, we'll go, uh, you know, go uh, test their petroleum or their oil, and see if they're using any sort of additives for the cold. It's like, nope, nope, they're not. So Stalin has all this evidence that Hitler is not ready to attack him, you know, and that's why. He's lulled into thinking that there's no way that Hitler would open up a two-front war. That's why Germany lost in the Great War. Everyone who fought in the Great War knows this. right? You cannot win a two-front war. He is waiting for Hitler to invade Britain. You know, and he's getting uh, scared. Like when uh, Hess you know, flies to Britain in, what, May 6th or is it May 10th of uh, 1941, uh, he's like, you know, no one understands what this is. By the way, you you have like the, the the deputy Reichsfuhrer, you know, flying in a private aircraft to Scotland, parachuting I mean, the, in. The German high command didn't know what it was. I mean, he was basically acting on his own, from what I know. That's the that's the legend. I personally think that uh, you know the uh, British have a pretty good intelligence system too. They're second. They're at this time. They're at least second in the world to the uh, to the um, uh, NKVD, and. Uh, so I think that they uh, b- he believed that he was coming to meet uh, you know high up Brits that were close to the king about uh, ending the war, and I think Hitler knew about it, you know personally. But uh, I don't have any proof of that. It's just my suspicion. If I were an investigator, but uh, for whatever you know, it's crazy that it happened, absolutely crazy. But and uh, Stalin thought it was crazy too. He's like, oh no, are they? Is there something going on that the Brits aren't telling me? Because all during this time, Winston Churchill's trying to get him into the war, and um, you know, come on in. It's the only hope the British Empire has. Get him in the war, because you know, Winnie thinks that the Germans are going to invade Britain, and um, so you know, from Stalin's perspective, like there is no way Hitler is about to attack him, and it makes perfect sense. He's not ready. And it's a testament to the German army, to mission command, to the general staff, and to Hitler being a freaking hero, a crazy hero, that he did it. 
you know, because uh, they weren't ready. He, they knew that within 700 kilometers going in, that they would no longer be able to conduct any blitzkrieg whatsoever. They knew it would be start and stop. They knew they would have all sorts of problems. And they actually thought, the OKW thought, and Yodel, you know, said this. All this was said after the war. You know, it's not a mystery. The Germans said, yeah, we invaded because they were about to invade us. They just thought they were going to destroy the entire Red Army there on the uh, uh, border where it was. They thought that was the entire Red Army. They had no idea how many tanks there were. They didn't know what a T-34 was. You know, they liked the T-34 so much that they would capture them and use them in their own units, the Germans would. That's how wonderful it was. Right? They had never seen one of these things before. There was an actual tank panic in the uh, Wehrmacht when uh, these T-34 showed up. They could actually just go straight through infantry and crush your field guns. You know, just like Skull, you know, <laughs> skull fuck you, you know, and uh, it scared the Wehrmacht, you know, the, these advanced weapons that the Soviets have. And uh, but it's a testament uh, to how good they are that they took so many cat. They, they captured Stalin's son and he had a letter in his pocket and it's a letter from a friend, uh, some junior lieutenant in another unit. And this guy's like, I'd like to be home by autumn, but I think our walk to Berlin might interrupt that. And they're like, what's this walk to Berlin stuff? You know, Shukashvili, you know, and he's like, damn it. You know, he had revealed in a letter that they were about to invade. You know, they they captured Stalin's own son, and he's got a letter about them walking to Berlin, wink, wink. (laughs) You know, when Barbarossa happened, they actually invaded Romania. No one, talk, no one talks about this. He took his monitors, his riverboats, and uh, used them to invade Romania at 70 kilometers in. And it was a small action. The whole point was to protect the flank for when those mountain divisions come in to go through the Carpathian passes. And they were completely cut off. They're like, we did our mission. You know, uh, the, there's war. We invaded. You know, because the, those were the war plans. When there's a war with Germany, you invade. And uh, so they did. They were cut off. They had to burn all their monitors. They had to leave their equipment behind and try to make it back to the lines. You know, it's just a waste. Those monitors could be could have been used to defend Stalingrad. You know, the, the, these these were important armored riverboats. And um, you know, it, it, you know, no one talks about this. What was he going to do with all those rail cars? You know, they lost eighty five percent of. They had a special ministry just for ammunition. Right, that's how big. That's how much into war they were. They lost eighty-five percent of that ammo production when uh, the Germans invaded. That's how far they got in. Moscow was left open. Why was Moscow left open? Because most of your troops were south of the swamps in Belarus, and uh, the center was destroyed. So there's nothing, no Stalin line, nothing standing between them and Moscow. And they go straight. The Wehrmacht goes straight for Moscow. First thing. And uh, this is where Hitler was right and the generals were wrong about standing your ground because if they had left their shelters during that winter, that December, they would have frozen to death. So Hitler develops a bad habit of always wanting last standers. So he starts replacing all the genius generals that are all about maneuver and having high kill ratios and replacing them with last standers that will fight till the 11th hour. And – we capture, we Western allies capture all those good generals from the beginning of the war that we like, you know. And so the, these men, we we don't have good records 
uh, from uh, the war against the Soviets. That's why it was such a mystery for decades afterwards. You know, because we're dealing with the generals that you know the German generals we captured. They didn't lead. The Soviets got all the ones. Uh, you know, all the the biggest ones. You know that were fighting on the Eastern Front. So that, that, that's also part of uh, the uh, mystery of the Eastern Front. No one talks about it. It's the heart of World War II. You know, uh, every, America hardly did anything compared to the Soviet Union. Like everything that the United States did in the Second World War was a drop in the bucket compared to the Soviet Union. And everything else that the British and French empires did was a drop in the bucket compared to the United States. Well, Masonius, when you say uh, the United States didn't do anything, I mean, I think, I think in terms of combat, you're – very arguably correct. Uh, what I would say, however, is that the Soviet Union could have very well collapsed without the the lend lease and uh, just direct. There you go. Absolutely, what I've. Yeah. There you go. That's what I was getting to. The we were the arsenal of communism in the Second World War. Uh, there were three routes to get munitions there. You could go, you know, over the ice over Scandinavia. You could go to uh, into the Indi- Yeah, uh, Persia. You could go through Persia, which was the main route. There was a Far Eastern route, too. We were providing every single truck, <laughs> and uh, uh, we provided them grain. And they would actually spray paint over the U.S. symbols so that the average Soviet had no idea. They thought the grain was USSR. That's what it said, or, or triple CP. Uh, but the, uh, the Russian troops knew. The Soviet troops knew. And so the Soviet troops had a joke about spam. You know, because all the spams coming from the United States, they said, let's let's open the second front, you know, and then they'd open up a can of spam. You know, and so they would always tell that joke whenever they opened up a can because it all came from the United States. The United States is producing ammunition that they can't even use in their own weapon systems, but they're producing it for Russia. Why? They lost 85 percent of their munitions industry because Stalin placed it in the West so that it could uh, – uh, so that it could provide ammunition for the Western advance into Germany. He did not place it east of the Urals. And so it, they lost 85% of it. So the United States is providing it. The Germans. Yeah. So Chef Boyardee was a real guy. His name was Ettore Biordi. And uh, he was actually awarded, uh, I'm trying to find which specific Soviet medal, but. He was awarded some medal by the USSR for providing them. He had the contract to supply them with canned pasta. Nice. Nice. Yeah, we're, uh, every single truck, uh, all this grain and all this munitions. The Germans actually used all the uh, shells that were stacked up on their border um, to uh, fight all the way to Stalingrad. So Suvorov does a calculation where he figures out that the Third Reich, its munitions plants could only provide, it was something like 20 or 20% of all the munitions, all the artillery shells that they used uh, fighting on the way to Stalingrad. Where did the other shells come from? They came from the Soviet Union itself. <laughs> they captured them. They were being stacked up and stockpiled along the border, and they're using it to fight the Soviets. And you know, there's there's a lot more about the war that Suvorov explains. It's like, where did the rifle guards come from? The guards units. These were the best units the Soviet Union had, and they magically appeared whenever the hour was darkest. So the uh, Germans are running towards Stalingrad, and they have a clear shot to the Grozny oil fields, and then suddenly. A guards army show up, named after the Napoleonic guards. They're they're elite. They have the best equipment, the best weapons, the best officers. 
you know, and they all have, you know, uh, numbers in line, one, two, three, four, you know, fifth guard, six guards, just like newly printed bills off of a counterfeit machine. And, uh, these guys were the hard chargers. Like, uh, the last great assault of the war was when the third ride tried to, uh, take hungry back and, uh, the guards units surrounded them and just completely destroyed the SS army. And, uh, they lost like half their men doing it. So, but these guys are, you know, you, they can take 50% casualties without quitting. That's how good these guys are. Where did they come from? You know, Suvorov's like, where, where did these young men come from? Now, there were like 3.8 million men in the Red Army. So he's using the other, like, 1.4 men because um, uh, they had a 5.2 million men total. But there were only 3.8 million, like, on the Western Front when Barbarossa happened. Where, wh- who are those other 1.2 million? It's his paratroopers. <laughs> He is giving them the best equipment, and he's turning them into ground fighters with heavy equipment. And so the paratroopers start showing up, you know, at the key moments, the 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 moment of truth, because like Suvorov explains in Inside the Soviet Army, the Russians always make you fight a boss battle. You have to go through all the old tanks, and then you hit the T-34s. You're like, holy crap! I thought it was about to be over, and now you're hitting a better weapon system, you know. And he just dropped them like aces. Whenever the, th- the times got toughest, suddenly guards units with uh, numbered numbered in order would just show up out of nowhere, newly created. And uh, guards would be the elite unit for the Soviets for the rest of their history until they collapsed. And uh, you know, anyway, I thought that was uh, that was wonderful. You would never get that from reading regular history books. You know, where did the guard units come from? Why were they so good? You know. Is the paratroopers? Masodis, what what attracted you to follow this this theory that the Soviet Union was uh, a graver threat than it, it appeared to, to be in the nineteen forties? I started reading about uh, how the Soviet Union actually worked because it's a it's a it's a mystery. You know, in the Communist Party, um, you know, s- someone dropped a line somewhere about how modern corporations are basically built like the Communist Party. I'm I'm going to find out more about corporate law and communist uh, you know uh, organization now to see if he's right, and I you know I start studying and like he's right, <laughs> you know the uh, the uh, com- communist congress is like a shareholders meeting. They appoint a central committee, which is like a uh, non-executive directors board in in German corporations, and then the Politburo is like the executive board, you know, and. Uh, you know, I'm like, well, this is interesting, and then I, I start reading more about the Communist Party, and it's a secret organization. How is it even a party if no other party is allowed? You know, what is it a party of? What is it a part of? And I start reading this, and I start realizing that this is fascinating. You know, and uh, and I've always hated the communists, but you know, it's it's you know, you're studying efficient, effective evil. <laughs>